And if you have your Bible, turn over to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 20. Or if you don't have a Bible, you can find uh, this text there in your, uh, your bulletin on the scripture sheet. Uh, we had a long Old Testament reading because we have a very short New Testament reading. And I, I trimmed that one as much as I possibly could so that it would be easy for you to grasp the story, even though you know, it was still long. It could have been longer. <laughs> uh, this is a, a very, very dramatic story that we are uh, looking at today. And it's expressed by the writer to the Hebrews in such a brief way. Uh, So look there at verse 20 of Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. This is the word of the Lord. Now, (laughs) uh, just like with so many of these uh, people in the family photo album. Uh, it's a little bit hard sometimes when you, when you read what Hebrews has to say and then you go back and read the fuller story in the Old Testament. It's a little hard to figure out what exactly did they do by faith? <laughs> and I think this morning uh, it's probably more apparent than in any of the other stories. Uh, for me, actually I spent the first couple of days this week just trying to work out in my head, what, was, what did Isaac do by faith exactly? I mean, <laughs> this story is an absolute mess. An absolute train wreck. Uh, I don't know if you've ever experienced family drama before. Uh, I'm sure none of you have, or actually all of you have, right? And, you know, just this week we saw it in the news, family drama at a big level with the royal family. So even the royal family experiences family drama, right? And here, the royal family of our faith, you know, Abraham's very own family, the first family of believers that we Read about in Scripture the covenant family. They experienced some big-time drama. What did Isaac do? Here's what he did. Hebrews tells us, By faith, in the midst of that mess, his faith moved towards the future. And he invoked future blessings in a messy situation. He stood on the basis of the promises of God. Now, there's a lot in this story that that we read earlier in in Genesis. It's kind of weird to us today. We don't think about blessings in the same way that they did back then. When we think blessing, we think, hey, here's a well wish, just a a wishful thanking, you know, bless you when somebody sneezes, as I think somebody just did. Bless you, right? And and we really don't tend to even, uh, we don't tend to even, you know, mean that really in terms of the actual words that we're saying. We just say it as a a form of habit. Back then, a blessing was uh, serious, especially when the father did it, the patriarch of the family like we see here. Uh, A blessing actually to them invoked things that were actually going to happen in the future, Now, some people in the world back then believed that was because of some kind of power that was within the words or power within the Father, as if, you know, know, fathers were fortune tellers or future shapers. That's not what Genesis is teaching us. There's actually a very different view of the future in the Bible. Uh, This story is telling us uh, Isaac was not a fortune teller. Uh, Isaac was not a future shaper. God is the future shaper. What is Isaac doing by faith? He is speaking what God had already spoken to him. He's taking a stand, like I said, in the midst of a messy situation on what God had already promised. When these two boys were born, uh, God said to Rebekah, their mother, the younger is going to rule over the older. 
The older is going to serve the younger, which was an absolute reversal of the way things normally went. Everybody in the story starts scheming to try to get their way. Isaac even schemes to get his way, but somehow in the story he stumbles to faith, and faith works to the future. Do you know you need future faith in your life? Future faith. Uh, Sometimes we think of faith only in terms of, I believe certain things that happened in the past that are written in the Bible. Or or we think faith is a a feeling in the present. I want to tell you all, and maybe help expand your thinking on this if you haven't thought about it, faith is also aimed at the future. And it grabs a hold of what God has said in the future and it clings to it in the present. Even when things in the present don't seem to be matching what God has said is going to happen in the future. Look at your bulletin today. I want to tell you three things from this verse and this story about future faith. I want to show you why we need it. I want to show you how we can get it. And then I want to show you what it looks like. Why do we need it? How can we get it? And what does it look like? First of all, why do we need future faith? Well, we, don't, we hardly need to even answer that question. Because I think all of us have the experience that looking at the future and thinking about the future can easily overwhelm you with a negative experience. Isn't that right? Anxiety, fear and terror, and fretting are my typical responses to the future. I don't know about you. We look at what's coming. We don't know what it is by definition, right? Nobody is a fortune teller. Uh, Nobody has control over the future. No one's an actual future shaper. All of us look at the future, and we don't even know the most basic things about it. And so when we look at it, it is so easy for our hearts to get overwhelmed by anxiety, fear, and fretting. And that actually ruins everything, doesn't it? When you're full of anxiety, when you're full of fear and fretting about the future, it, it has consequences. Not just for you, but for others around you. Think about this. Did you know there was a job called a sports psychologist? That's an actual job that people have. And almost most every pro athlete or pro sports team has sports psychologists on staff and on retainer. Uh, And the reason for that is people recognize there's a whole lot of money in sports, right? The performance of those folks playing the sports is a big deal because it makes a whole lot of people a whole lot of money and a few people even more money than the rest of everybody. And it doesn't matter how great a physical athlete you are, if what's going on between your ears is not right, you're not going to perform well. What's going on between your ears is not just a matter of does it make you comfortable or uncomfortable. It actually has real-life consequences on the court, on the field, on the golf course, right? And so you got to get your headspace right, people have recognized, in order to get your performance right. Look at this story again. Think about this story. What's going on? Every single person in the story, every character, is filled with an overwhelming sense of anxiety, fear, and fretting about the future, and that sends them into all kinds of unhealthy actions against one another and even against God. And it doesn't just simply affect them. Let's just go down the list of all the characters. Rebecca. Do you think Rebecca's fretting about the future a little bit in the story that we read earlier? Absolutely. She hears Isaac say, I'm going to bless Esau and not Jacob. We learn a few chapters before that there was just some good old-fashioned family favoritism at play. It says very simply, very straight up, Isaac loved Esau 
But Rebecca loved Jacob. And I think that word but is key there. It, was, it wasn't just that they had, you know, a special, I mean, most all parents have an inclination that's different towards one child than the other. No, this was a straight up, I favor you and she favors him. And there was this division in the family because of it. All kinds of things happened. And so when Rebecca heard Esau's going to get not just a blessing, the blessing, the blessing that she knew in her heart God had given to their family, had given it to Abraham, and she knew in her heart God had promised that blessing to her favored child, Jacob. And so when she heard that, she started in motion. Uh, anxiety and fretting caused her to scheme. Jacob, what, is, what does he do? He goes right along with his mom's plot. Dresses up in goat skins. Steals some of Esau's clothing. Takes some goats and stuff and tries to pass it off as wild game. Cooking some tasty food, as it says. Some delicious food that... Uh, the father, Isaac, craves so much, goes in and lies through his teeth at his blind dad <laughs> who is on his deathbed. Isn't that amazing? I mean, this, this is not very good treatment. And it, and it stems from anxiety, fear, and fretting over future realities. Same thing, um, same thing with uh, Esau. How does Esau respond? Well, you don't see it in what we read because I, I had to cut something out because it got kind of long there. <laughs> but, but as it goes on, Esau says, I'm going to kill Jacob. That's how he responds. I'm going to kill that boy. I hate him. Esau's name means red in Hebrew, red for blood, red for violence. And, and that was the way Esau responded to nearly every situation in his life. Uh, Jacob's name, by the way, means liar, trick, cheat. <laughs> And that's the way, for many aspects of Jacob's life, he responded to situations. He cheated, Esau killed. Esau used violence. Why are they all doing this? Oh, and by the way, Isaac, okay? Now, now Isaac's a little less clear uh, whether he's doing this consciously or maybe, maybe he's just you know, bumbling along, not really sure exactly what he's doing. I, I don't know. I think it's probably likely he knew what God had said to Rebekah. He knew God had said Jacob was going to get the blessing and not Esau. But he's worried because, remember, he loves Esau. He thinks Esau is just a better man. And so he is trying to get it in under the wire. He thinks he's about to die, even though he's not going to end up dying for another couple decades. <laughs> At this point, I mean, he's lost his sight, you know, and, and he's, he's probably physically, you know, running down. He thinks he's going to die. And so he calls Esau in. What would normally be a public blessing ceremony becomes a private sort of just me and you. Cook me some tasty food and let me bless you incognito. Right? He's scheming too because he's afraid of what he doesn't know, what he can't know, what you and I can't know about the future. Did you know this? The most often repeated commandments in the Bible are the commandments, do not be afraid, fear not, don't be anxious, don't worry, fret not. You take that little collection, I think we'll all agree those are related, right? All those things are related, fretting, anxiety, fear. You take those together, hundreds of times in the Bible God says that to human beings. More than any other commandment. And by the way, it's a commandment, which should tell you something. God is not just saying, hey, I, I, would, I would suggest to you not worrying so much because it just feels so uncomfortable to worry. <laughs> God doesn't say that. He comes to people and says, fear not. Stop being afraid. 
Stop fretting. Stop worrying. Why? Because God knows what this story is teaching. You know, uh, one writer, Jerry Bridges, says uh, worry and anxiety is one of those sins that you could call respectable sins. You know, it's one of those sins that you're never going to get called out for it because, especially in our culture, we actually think that it's kind of heroic to be a worrier, to be a fretter, to be a schemer. You know, you're a real go-getter. You know, if you think about the future and toil over it and, you know, strive in your heart over what you don't know in the future and try to make it happen, you're a real go-getter, you're a real independent person. And so it's a respectable sin. Uh, Somebody is not going to call you out on it. If you tell a lie, you're going to be shamed by people, whether they're Christians or not. They're not going to like lying. If, if, obviously, if you murder, if you cheat on your spouse, and all those other kinds of things, people are going to call you out and think that you're a pariah. If you're a worrywart, you're going to get a bunch of praise all your life long. People are going to say, oh, what a responsible young man. What a responsible young lady. And yet, God knows, and we ought to know, It is not respectable or innocent. It causes damage. The first kind of damage it causes is the damage with our relationship to God. The Bible teaches something about God and the future that is so important to understand. And it's so actually so hard to understand, but it's important to know in your mind and and to accept it by faith. And it's this. We read it in our call to worship. If you'll look back in your bulletin at that verse, uh, Isaiah chapter 46, you can see it right there printed. Remember this, keep it in mind. There is no one like me, God says. I am the one who declares the end from the beginning. God is speaking about his activity in respect to the future there. I declare or, or, or decree or make it known The end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. And then he says, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. That's a good summary of the Bible's teaching about God in the future. And it's this, God declares everything that will ever happen before it happens. God declares everything that will happen before it happens. That's a a basic Bible teaching. He knows the end from the beginning, but it's not just because he's guessed good. It's not just because he's a good guesser. He knows the end from the beginning because he actually speaks it into existence. Now, you say, well, that's, that's crazy. How am I supposed to believe something like that? I mean, does that make my choices null and void? And, you know, there's all kinds of questions that fire off in your mind like fireworks when you hear that. And I just want to say to you this morning, based on this passage, that's actually the point of that teaching in the Bible. <laughs> The point of that teaching is for you to be like, I don't understand that. And God says, exactly. So trust me. (laughs) Exactly. There's no way you can work that out. You cannot work out how God sovereignly controls all things, and yet we are on this earth with responsibility and will one day be held accountable to him for the choices we make. Both things are true. You're never going to be able to fully make those things work out in every situation, and yet God says, that's the point. You have to trust me in regards to your future. And so anxiety, fear, and fretting are commanded against because they're a breach of our relationship with God. It's actually from our heart saying, God, I don't think you're really there. Or, God, I don't think you're really all that good. I don't think you're there. I've got to take the future in my hand. You don't exist. Or, God, you're not good enough to manage the future the way I would manage the future. 
And is that not what Rebecca, <laughs> Isaac, Jacob, Esau are doing like to the 10th degree in this story? Trying to take the future into their hands because they cannot believe that God is going to do it. Even in respect to a promise that he has already made. And we do that all the time. If you're somebody here, remember at the beginning of this series, I, I said there are four quadrants of people when it comes to faith. And if there's somebody here today or, or, or watching or listening in who would say, you know that you don't have faith in God. This, at this point, I really want to challenge you. I want to challenge you this morning. If you say you know you do not believe in God or don't have any time for the Bible or Christianity, I want you to think, don't you realize that you can never, ever fully understand God in order to believe in him or accept him? You can't use that as an, as an excuse because no one has ever <laughs> fully understood God. And if you think about it, if God is God, why would we think we could be able to understand him fully? If we could understand him, he wouldn't be God. Isn't that right? And yet so often, you know, so often when we say, well, I don't believe. Why don't you believe? Too many unanswered questions. Too many things I don't know. Uh, Bertrand Russell famously said, he was an atheist, famously, and he said, well, you know, if God is real one day and you end up appearing before him, what will you say to him? I mean, well, how will you react if you're surprised that he exists? In an interview, someone asked that, and he said, I'll say, God, I needed more evidence. I needed more evidence. I want to tell you, that is a dangerous game to play. Here's the reason. You don't do that with any other thing in your life. <laughs> There's no other area in your life that you say, I'm not going to accept it until I fully understand it. You're accepting things all the time that you do not have all the facts or the evidence about, and yet you're staking your entire life on it. Why? Are you so prejudiced against God? That's the question. I want to tell you, it's not, just, it's not just those who would say they know they don't have faith that are prejudiced against God. Every one of us have a native prejudice where we think we can know better than God. We can manage the future better. We don't like how God manages things. And so we're going to, that's what my worry is. That's what my doubt is. That's what my fear is. My fretting about the future. We're not talking about planning for the future and being wise. We're talking about the fretting. You know, you know the difference between planning and fretting. This story illustrates the difference so, so well. And so I wonder this morning, when you think about your future, how do you react? Are you often caught in what I call in the outline the future fog? That's what I'm calling this. That fog that descends and you're like, you know, you're scrambling around trying to find your way through it because you don't know the answers. You think God can't know the answers. And so you're, you're barreling through as if you are God. That causes so much damage. So much damage. More than we can ever know. That's the first thing. Why we need future faith. You've got to have it. You can't just believe what God has done in the past. That's not enough. You can't just believe that, you know, in, in terms of a feeling in the present. You have got to, by faith, reach out and grab the things that God has said about the future. And you got to pull them into the present and stand on them. That's the first thing. Secondly, how do we get future faith? We all know we need it. How do we get it? Well, I think the story, the way Isaac uh, behaves here is, is a great illustration of how you can get it. And, and it's a wonderful illustration because Isaac is not playing the part of perfect example. 
is he? You know, he's playing the part of very flawed, stumbling, bumbling example, which is a great example for me. And I I think you'll see it's a great example for you as well. And, And the basic thing we see is this. Preparation produces performance. Okay? Think about that. Don't, don't, don't we know that's true? How you prepare when things are not stressful and intense is how you're going to end up performing when they are stressful and intense. This is the reason why when, you, when builders go to build a building, they draw plans first. I mean, imagine trying to build a house with no plans. I mean, that would be bad. It wouldn't, it, it wouldn't work very well. Uh, this, this is the reason why, for example, actors you got to study your lines, right? I mean, if you try to get up there and play a part without ever studying your lines, I mean, what, what is that? I mean, it's kind of like whose line is it anyway, maybe. <laughs> but there's not a coherent plot in whose line is it anyway. It's just a bunch of little vignettes, little, little scenes popped out of no plot. <laughs> if you're going to be a part of a plot, you got to prepare. Sports people, uh, in your job, in many ways, I'm sure, you prepare and then you perform. And how you prepare determines how you perform. Well, that's what we see with Isaac. Isaac is caught in a situation where future fog has descended on him and his family. He can't see the way out. Nobody can see the way out. And yet, he's kind of the only one in the story who somehow, some way, stumbles into faith. You say, well, how did he stumble into faith? Well, Hebrews tells you, he blessed his sons, in regard to their future. When, when Esau came and said, Oh, Dad, I can't believe you did that. Bless me, you know, switch it back. <laughs> what, does, what does Isaac say? He shall be blessed. Why did Isaac say that? Was it just because he said, well, well, I'm the dad and I've blessed and that's all there is. Once the blessing's given, it's given. Probably there was a little bit of that because that's the way people thought at that time. But I think there was more of this. I knew I was wrong all along. He's the one I should have blessed and God did it again. God, God orchestrated his future in spite of all the people orchestrating against him. God did it. And I'm not going to go back on that son. He shall be blessed. I'm going to give you a blessing too, Esau. And and Jacob, I mean, Isaac uh, does go on to give Esau a pretty significant blessing, but it's not anywhere near as significant as the blessing from God that he gave to Jacob. And even though he gave it by accident, at the end of the day, you can see Isaac, blind, old, frail, standing strong on the basis of what God had told him. Now, you've got to ask yourself, how did Isaac get to that point? And I want to say, he performed well, eventually, because he prepared well. And, and here, Hebrews doesn't tell us this, but you've got to kind of go back into the story of Isaac. And I want to just give you some of the examples of Isaac's story. Uh, first of all, we saw a little bit last week, Isaac's story with God began, remember, with him being strapped to a wooden altar, <laughs> right? You remember that? Yeah, being strapped to a wooden altar, not knowing where is the lamb. And then at the last minute, there was the lamb, right? I mean, can you imagine that experience for you as a, as a boy? Maybe he was 12 years old. Can you imagine that? Um, uh, Isaac must have been a man who knew how to live at the foot of the cross, You say, well, what do you mean? The cross wouldn't happen for another 2,000 years. I mean, he lived in that, you know, that place of substitution. 
He understood God is able to save me by putting something else in my place. And that must have made a mark deep in him. We know it did make a mark because later in his life, he was 40 years old before he got married, Isaac. That was unusual for that time, right? 40 years old. And even at 40, his dad had to go send a servant to a far place to find a wife. And he was gone for a while. Isaac didn't know whether he was going to come back with a willing woman or not, you know? And so what does it say in Genesis? When, when uh, Rebecca, his wife, does come back with the servant, because she is willing, he, she looks out and sees Isaac by himself in the fields, meditating. Meditating. What was he doing? He was practicing future faith. He was preparing. In that moment where he could have been surrounded by fog, am I going to get a wife? I'm 40 years old. The time's running out. Am I going to be able to carry on the promises of God? You know, wringing his hands. Instead of doing that, he went outside, got by himself, and began to go over again and again the promises of the Lord. He meditated on what God had said and what God had did. you got to know that in his mind he was thinking about that day when he was laid on that altar. And in the nick of time, that ram started rustling in the thicket. you got to think he was thinking that. And maybe, just maybe, in the nick of time, a wife's going to come across that horizon. Not with a frown, but with a smile on her face, hopefully, (laughs) right? And that's exactly what happened. She became a very willing and a very loving wife. Same thing happened after they got married. This wife of theirs ended up being barren, unable to bear children. What a painful experience that is. What a painful experience. And what does it say in Genesis? Isaac called out to the name of the Lord on behalf of his wife. Future fog didn't sit on him in such a way that made him get into anxiety and scheming like his dad did. Remember his dad, when his wife was barren, you know, they were like, well, take the servant, you know, and then have babies with her. That's not what they did. Isaac prayed, called on the name of the Lord, and it says, God opened Rebekah's womb. And then uh, there was the matter of trying to find a house. Isaac and Rebecca had a hard time finding a house. They had a really hard time. They were at one place. They dug all these wells. I mean, the number one problem at, in Israel at this time was just finding water. It, it's a pretty arid place. They dug all these wells. The wells were producing water. The Philistines came and filled them all in just to spite Isaac because they hated Isaac. So he had to move and dig some more. And then some other people came and filled those in. Then he moved and dug some more, and some other people came and attacked him and filled those in. Five times this happens. Five times he has to move and dig new wells, which is no easy thing to do, right? That is not an easy task. He has to dig wells five different times. And it says every time he called on the name of the Lord. He built an altar there to the Lord. He worshiped God. He thought about the faithfulness of the Lord in the midst of his present circumstance. Isaac was a preparer before the Lord. And so in this moment, late in his life, when everything was, you know, when, when everything was falling apart, and it seemed like the promise of God was not going to go forward at all, somehow he was able to stumble. Even if it was stumbling, he was able to stumble into faith because he had prepared well. I want to tell you, that's how you and I do it too. You cannot wait until you get into the future fog to figure out how to get out of the future fog. If you do, you're not going to get out. 
You can't wait till the crisis to think, oh man, I shouldn't worry, I shouldn't fret, I shouldn't be afraid. Too late. Too late. Here's what you have to do. You have to practice, I'll call it this, the art of thanksgiving. The art of thanksgiving. Every day, constantly in your life, in order to be prepared for those moments where your heart of thanksgiving is pressed beyond its limits. And here's what it is. This is what I think Isaac did. This is what the Bible says to do, for example, in Philippians chapter 4, that famous passage, don't worry about anything. That's what it says in Philippians 4. Don't worry about anything. Here's what it says to do. First of all, adore God. I'm going to give you ABC if you want to write it down. ABC of the art of thanksgiving. A, adore God. Work up into your heart. Recall who God is, what he said, what he's done who he's been in the past, who he's promised to be in the future. And work up into your heart a good sense of adoration and joy in who God is. Sometimes we don't don't really believe well because we're not not working on our feelings very well. Uh, This is kind of what we've been saying as a theme in this chapter. You've got to talk to yourself. You've got to take yourself in hand and remind yourself who God is so as to buoy up in the Lord. And sometimes that's a fight. It doesn't just happen. You, you know, emotions, don't, contrary to what people think, they don't just hit you like a bolt of lightning most of the time. And most of the time, you've got to work on them. You've got to adore God. Second, B, you've got to bring your concerns to that God you just adored. It says in Philippians, don't worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer, bring them to God. Bring them to Him. If you've you've thought, for example, man, God is a faithful God. He's an on-time God. He's always been on time. Like Isaac, oh, in that moment, I was about to die, and there was that ram just in time in the thicket. Then you can take to that on-time God that concern about him not being on time and say, Lord, here it is. This is what I'm worried about. Oh, but Lord, I know. I don't feel it right now, but I know that you're able to do something in this situation. Bring it to the God that you know. And then third, see Commit to the supernatural peace that God alone can give you. Commit to the supernatural peace. It says there in Philippians, bring your request to God with thanksgiving and the peace of God will guard your heart. It'll rule over your heart and keep it and tend it. We're going to talk more about that in just a second to close out the sermon. But you've got to commit to the peace that God is able to bring into your life when you adore him and bring your concerns to him. What this creates is what uh, some people call the, the Stockdale Paradox. The Stockdale Paradox. Have you ever heard of this man, Jim Stockdale? Uh, he fought in the Vietnam War, and he was taken prisoner by the Vietnamese. And as many people who were taken prisoner by the Vietnamese, he had a lot of you know, just terrible things happen to him while he was in prison. He was in prison for a long time. And, and the reason they call it the Jim Stockdale Paradox is because later when they were talking to him about his experiences... Uh, they asked him, how were you able, uh, so many people lost their minds when they were in there. How were you able to keep it? And he goes, easy, easy. I, I believe, well, first of all, he believed in God. And he said, I believed that the future was certain in the hands of God. That's what he said. I believe the future is certain in the hands of God. And so that made me able not to just simply be an optimist. He says the people that were the worst in, in prison in Vietnam were the optimists. Because when you're an optimist, just for the sake of being an optimist, 
uh, you're going to end up getting disappointed and have your heart broken over and over and over and over and over again because this world is not an optimistic world, right? It's just not. And I say that as someone who is an eternal optimist. <laughs> but I have such a hard time with that. The heart gets broken because it's just not a realistic way of viewing the world. Jim Stockdale says, and this is why they call it the paradox, I was able to hold the, and he says basically the hell that I was in, right, in that prison, I was able to hold that honestly while at the same time knowing but the future is certain in God's hands. That's the paradox. I was able to see it realistically. I wasn't just an optimist, but I wasn't a pessimist either because I believed that the future was secure in God's hands, not in my hands, but in God's. And so I was able to go forward. And so they call this the Stockdale Paradox. And that's what practicing the art of thanksgiving over and over again in your life can produce when you're in those difficult, future, foggy situations. It's what it did with Isaac. And so my question this morning is, how are you preparing for the next future fog in your life? It may be that you're in the middle of one right now, right? It may be that you're not. One will come again. It'll come. Are you preparing now for it? If you wait until it comes, you won't be ready. I'm sorry to say, you won't be ready. You can't do this kind of work in reverse retroactively in those moments. You've got to work on it before you get there. That's the second thing. Lastly today, what does future faith look like? What does it look like? And we see it with Isaac. It looks like invoking God in the middle of the muck of life. Invoking God in the middle of the muck of life. Uh, We see Isaac in the story doing two things. Uh, and, and this kind of gets back to the Stockdale paradox. It says when, when Esau came in and says, Dad, what have you done? I, I'm Esau. Who did you just bless? It says Isaac trembled violently. He trembled violently. Now, why do you think he did that? I'm sure we could debate. It doesn't actually say why he did that, but I, I'm going to hazard a guess because Isaac was a man of faith. I want to hazard a guess. It was not because, oh, man, I wanted Esau to get the blessing, and now he's not going to get the blessing. I think it was he realized who he had been messing with and how he had lost <laughs> in messing with who he was messing with. He trembled violently because he realized, I had tried to cross God. As we read in that quotation at the beginning, there is no greater example of pride in this world than when I try to put my will against his will. And Isaac realized he had done that. He trembled violently, and then he he invokes God when he says, no, he shall be blessed. You see that? And then this is the way it looks to have future faith. It looks like a willingness to repent, Right? A willingness to tremble at the word of God, a willingness to admit that we've been wrong and that we've gone about things the wrong way, a willingness to admit our problem with, with uh, pride and our problem with worry and fear and fretting, while at the same time a willingness to fight our way back to calling on the name of the Lord, which is what invoking him means. Invoking him is calling him into the situation. Calling God into the situation that we're in. And that's how the peace of God, as we read about, as I mentioned from uh, Philippians 4, the peace of God comes in to guard the heart. Uh, Isn't it easy to tell when something is guarded versus when it's unguarded? I mean, think about a garden. You know when a garden's being tended and when it's not being tended. When it's being tended, it looks great. When it's non-tended, it looks like a mess of weeds and all kinds of stuff, right? 
A house that's not lived in is easy to tell from a house that is occupied, right? I want to say, in a similar way, it's easy to tell when your life is being guarded by the peace of God and when it's not. It might be hard for you to tell, but it's not hard for anybody else in your life to tell. I'm going to tell you that. (laughs) None of the people who live with you, none of the people who work with you are in any way mystified by whether or not the peace of God is ruling your heart. And they're not mystified about it with me either. Because it has actual, real-life evidences Real-life effects. If you're somebody who's not willing to ever tremble violently and remember that you're wrong and admit that, it's obvious that the peace of God is not ruling your heart. If you're somebody who's not willing to invoke God into daily situations, it's very obvious that the peace of God is not ruling over your heart. And so I want to close with this. How, how can that begin to look that way in my life and here's the only way I'm going to tell you here's the only way the peace of God the Bible says comes to us only in Christ Jesus in a similar way okay, follow me here in a similar way that Jacob could not in this situation get the blessing unless he dressed up like Esau his brother you cannot get the peace of God unless you dress up like Jesus your brother And the only reason you can dress up like Jesus, your brother, is because he dressed up like you. You hear me? Uh, Jesus put on your clothes to go to to your father and his father for you, not to defraud you, but to bless you. And the clothes he had to put on were humiliating clothes, dirty clothes, sinful clothes. He was nailed to the cross in the place of sinners like me and you. So that you and I could come into the presence of God clothed in the spotless robes that he has. So that when we come to God, we are sure that we're going to get the blessing, not the curse. Jesus received the curse. Jesus was cursed like Esau was cursed on the cross. And worse. So that we could get the blessing of Jacob and better by faith in him. And that includes not just present blessings, you know, not just blessings for right now. It includes blessings for the future. Did you know that? Jesus dressed up like you so that you could have a future and a hope in God. And if you have faith in Christ, you definitely have that future. Just, I mean, this is what I want to close by reading to you. Uh, This just comes right out of Revelation chapter 1 and 2 which uh, is Jesus' message to the churches. There's seven churches in Asia at that time, and Jesus just gives a letter to each one. And there are, uh, it didn't count them, but there's, there's about 12 I will statements that Jesus gives to the churches. Twelve future promises that come because Jesus dressed up like you on the cross so that you could be dressed up like him by faith. Here's what he says. Let this hit you this morning. This is what your future is. I will give you the right to eat from the tree of life. I will rescue you from eternal death. I will, this is Jesus talking, I will give you some of the hidden manna, some food that nobody else even knows about. I will give you a white stone and, and with it a name written on that stone that no one knows but you. A new name, a new identity one day. I will give you authority over the nations. I will give you the morning star. I will dress you in white. 
I will never blot your name from the book of life. I will acknowledge you before my Father and his angels. Wow. I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. I will ensure that you never leave God's presence. I will write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. I will give you the right to sit down with me on my throne, just as my Father gave me the right to sit down with him on his throne. I will, I will, I will, I will. That's your future. Can you, can you, Tremble violently over your desire to seize the will of your life from God and take it into your own hands. And can you invoke those blessings in whatever fog you're in this morning? Let's pray.